Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Al Pazimentier, author of The Joy of Geometry. This is a book for someone who has taken geometry but wants to go further. This book, as one might expect, is heavy on diagrams, and it is sometimes hard to discuss some of the ideas without reference to a diagram. Also, to be fair, this is not a book intended to be read casually. To fully appreciate this book, and believe me, it's well worth appreciating, it is necessary to sit down, preferably in a comfortable chair with a beverage of one's choosing, and prepare to give the diagrams a close look. The effort will be well rewarded. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Al, the focus of your book is on the beauty of geometrical configurations without the necessity of going through proofs. What motivated you to write such a book? Well, that's a good question. <clears throat> I've written a number of books on geometry, largely aimed at folks who want to study geometry in a more serious way, where you prove everything that's been uh, stated and so on. And I figured that it's time for people to realize that geometry is a lot more than what we learn in the 10th grade or 9th grade in the secondary schools in the United States. By the way, most countries don't copy our 10th grade uh, format. Uh, they typically in, uh, integrate geometry into various other subjects but don't have a separate course as we do, um, which has been a long-term uh, discussion in education circles. However, when you ask most people, what do you remember from your geometry course in high school? They typically say, oh my God, we did proofs and proofs and proofs and proofs. And there was so much concentration on how to do a proof and make sure you do the proof legitimately that what was lost was that which you were proving, the beautiful, beautiful things that occur. So what I decided to do was to do a book with almost no proofs and merely just stating a lot of these magnificent relationships that exist in geometry. And I guess we'll go through some of them, and uh, we'll, we'll sort of highlight them. It's very difficult to do this when, you're not, when you don't have the visual support, but um, I hope that we can do that to the point where people will realize that you can have a lot of fun with geometry by just taking a paper pencil or using uh, dynamic geometry on a, on a computer screen and uh, you see some amazing things happening. You know, most people feel that geometry stopped where it ends in high school. We're all familiar with the great accomplishments of the Greek geometers, but geometry didn't stop when the Greek empire collapsed. Perhaps you could sketch out the type of problems that interested the Greeks and what happened to geometry after the Grecian empire. Well, when we talk about the Greeks and, and the historical geometry, we typically refer to Euclid's elements. And the interesting thing about Euclid's elements is he it's sort of a collection of everything that was known in, uh, in geometry in a form of logical way. And he did stress logic. And by the way, a little side uh, kick. There's one famous American who in his early years uh, always had a copy of Euclid's elements in his saddlebag and that was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he liked the logic of it, and he often quoted Euclid's logic when he made arguments in legal uh, sur surroundings. However, um, 
once we get past that that those very basic things, there are a number of very interesting uh, occurrences that happen in history that were not made necessarily by mathematicians. For example, um, we we all know the Pythagorean theorem, and uh, there are books written just about the Pythagorean theorem. There's one by Elisha S. Loomis called the Pythagorean Proposition, where he has, I believe, it's 370 different proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. And uh, although that's lovely, and uh, he also mentions you can't you cannot use trigonometry because trigonometry is based on a Pythagorean theorem, and that would be circular reasoning. But um, uh, there is uh, there are there are still constantly new proofs coming up. As a matter of fact, a famous American president James A. Garfield is known in mathematical circles because he, in fact, did prove the Pythagorean theorem uh, by publishing it in a journal in New England, uh, a Journal of Education, in the 1800s. And uh, today we still uh, admire that clever proof that he used. Very, very simple and can be shown to any high school student with no problem whatsoever. So there are famous people who've done that, uh, who've played around with geometry. For example, Leonardo da Vinci was clearly aware of a lot of geometry. For example, the golden rectangle, which is a rectangle that's supposedly the most beautiful shaped rectangle. And uh, that's been uh, proven, so to speak, by psychologists who've done research in that regard. And of course, if you know that Vitruvian man where a, a man stands with his arms out and encircled with a circle and a square, the golden rectangle is in there. And of course, if you put a, a, a rectangle around Mona Lisa's face, it is a golden rectangle shape. So he was well aware of it. And we also know that Napoleon, who had very little to do with geometry, although he supposedly loved mathematics, uh, is credited with a lovely relationship, which I can briefly describe for you now. Uh, namely, that if you take any triangle, any ugly triangle where let's say no sides are the same length and no angles are equal and so on. And on each side of that right triangle, you construct an equilateral triangle. And then you join the lines from the furthest vertex of the equilateral triangle to the uh, original triangle. Those three lines will always go through the one point. In other words, they are called concurrent lines. Or, for in addition, for example, if you take the center point of each of those three equilateral triangles and join them, you will create a new triangle, which is also equilateral. And that's regardless of what the original shape of the uh, basic triangle was. And this is sometimes refer it is referred to as Napoleon's theorem. There's some doubt as to whether he did it or whether some of his um, uh, uh, artillery engineers did it like uh fourier i'm guessing fourier no it was um <laughs> lapas and and a number of others but it, it it's it's questionable but he was the boss so he got credit for it you know, that often but, happens <laughs> say, we've got we've got a long way since the early roman and greek times uh in geometry and this is just one example of how uh that that happened yeah, you know, that's, uh, it's interesting because as you were describing that, I could see it. Um, and I'm 
hopeful that a lot of our listeners could see it as well. But one of the things that should be emphasized is that your book has a lot of diagrams in it, and they're beautiful diagrams. But unlike the example of the Napoleon and the equilateral triangles that you, uh, you know, that you just mentioned, some of them really need the pictures and the description that's given. You always give a verbal description of the problem and you have to sit down and look at it because it simply can't be, uh, it simply can't be appreciated by talking about it. And even, uh, as you know, this is just an audio podcast only. Even if it, this were a video podcast, I think it would detract from it because what would happen is you'd have one of those like PowerPoint presentations where you're throwing a lot of different things up on the screen and everybody gets confused. You've really got to look at some of these, sit down, look at them and say, oh yeah, that's it. And I like the idea that you didn't have proofs in it because I assume, you know, there you could always find a proof somewhere. And when I'm teaching mathematics, I always tell my students, if you take a course in chemistry, they tell you hydrogen is the lightest atom. And they never ask you to prove it because generations of chemists before have shown it. And so we use the fact And I think you can do that to some extent with mathematics. And certainly your book on geometry here is a step towards that because you can see the relations. Let let me give you another example of where we drew a few pictures of the same situation. And as I say, a lot of the beauty is that when these concurrencies or collinearities just happen to occur, regardless of the shape of the original situation, that's the amazing thing. For example... Frank Morley, who was Christopher Morley's father, uh, mathematician around the early part of the uh, uh, 20th century, uh, an American, came up with a very interesting and amazing uh, relationship. You take any triangle whatsoever, an ugly, ugly triangle, and you trisect each of the three angles. Now, we know those people who remember from high school perhaps know that you cannot trisect a general angle with a straight edge and compasses, but we can still trisect an angle with more modern tools. So we divide the angle into three, each angle into three equal parts and draw the lines. And where those lines meet will always, always create an equilateral triangle in the center of the tri- in the center of the original triangle, which is an amazing thing because it's totally independent of the shape of the original triangle. And that happens to be a very difficult thing to prove. We, uh, I have, I've written a couple of books where there's um, maybe half a dozen or more proofs of it, but it is a very difficult thing. Then there are some interesting stories in, uh, um, in, in uh, uh, the history of how we got to the geometry course that we teach in high school. Uh, one of the things that's amazing is that it's rare that you find another country that has a geometry course the way we do. And it's been up for a discussion for the last uh, 50 years, should it be, shouldn't it be, and so on. And New York State at one time uh, veered away from it and then came back to it again. But uh, it's a very interesting history because in the 1700s, there was a mathematician, a Scottish mathematician, Robert Simpson. And Robert Simpson decided to take Euclid's elements and translate them into English and, and created a rather large tome um, that was on sale in the English-speaking world for about 150 years, from the 1700s into the mid-1800s. I've got actually two 
original copies, one from the 1700s, one from the 1800s. And it's quite an interesting book, a very thick book. And that was the Bible, so to speak, of geometry in the English-speaking world. Well, from that, uh, Legendre, the French mathematician, tr decided to make a high school course, or I shouldn't say high school, at that time it was a college course of geometry. And then a fellow by the name of Davies, an American, uh, Columbia, and he also was at West Point, he created in the mid-1800s a high school book. Again, as I say, it's now the high school book, so to speak, but it was originally a college course of the geometry that we know where you do proof, 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 and so on. So this guy, Robert Simpson, had a fame in, in our history, so to speak. However, what's interesting, this fellow, Robert Simpson, um, is credited with a very, very interesting relationship in geometry called today Simpson's theorem. And it's very, very simple to explain. You take any triangle and put a circle around the triangle. And you know that anytime you have three points that are not collinear, you can always create a unique circle. So now you've got this circle around the triangle and you choose any point somewhere on the circle, anywhere. And from that point, you drop the perpendiculars to the three sides of the triangle. And no matter where that point is, those three points of intersection with the sides, the perpendiculars, will always be on the same line. They'll always form, they'll be collinear. And that's called Simpson's line or Simpson's theorem. Now, here's the crazy part. Simpson was not responsible for that, even though he's given that, uh, that, that fame. It was a fellow by the name of William Wallace who came up with this in 1799, long after Simpson passed away, and is not credited for it, because when any, during the time where Simpson's book was, so to speak, the geometry Bible, if I can say that, um, anything that was written in a sort of Euclidean fashion was always, oh, it's probably Simpson, probably Simpson. And so he was given credit for it, because if it was written in coordinate or analytic geometry form, it was uh, Descartes who got credit. So it was kind of a crazy situation where we have a, uh, a, a mis-accreditation uh, to a fellow by, from, to Robert Simpson, where it should have gone to William Wallace in 1799. So interesting stories. And we try to show some of that as well. Um, but as they say, there are a lot of theorems which we also show which go back to Ptolemy, uh, <clears throat> who lived in the uh, first 70 years, one, year 100 to 170, and he came up with a theorem, which is also very, very nice and very simple. Or Huron of Alexandria, uh, who showed how you can find the area of a triangle without knowing its altitude, because we all learn in high school the area of a triangle is the one-half the product of the base times the height, and you say, well, if I don't have the height, can I, how can I find it? Well, if you have the length of three sides, you can use Hero's formula and get the area of the triangle. So this is a good thing. Brahmagupta was, took it one step further to cyclic quadrilaterals. So it keeps on going. In it. So we do go back a little bit earlier and later. But the point is not when it was done, but what it is. And that you appreciate it, not how do you prove it, why is it so, if you draw it exactly, correctly, with whatever tools that you want, these things will all occur and be amazing. 
You know, why do you think geometry, as opposed to, say, algebra, continues to fascinate? Is it the visual component, which is such an important part of your book? Well, that's a very good question. And I've, you know, having been around for a couple of years in this field, so to speak, uh, I find that there are some people say, oh, I love geometry. Oh, I, oh, I hated geometry. First of all, I think the subjects we like or dislike are usually a function of how good the teacher you had in secondary school was presenting that material. If you had a great geometry teacher, you loved geometry. If you had a great algebra teacher, you probably loved algebra. And I mean great, not just who explained it well, but who also motivated the class by showing things that were beyond the uh, curriculum. Because that's really, anytime a teacher shows the class something that's not required, not going to be tested, not part of the curriculum, they have a personal uh, enthusiasm as they present it, and that's contagious. And as a result, the students are turned on by it. But to answer your question, if geometry is presented correctly, and I mean motivational, pro- motivationally proper and, and interesting in, in, uh, in, by showing the interesting things and not just doing theorem, 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 theorem and without any uh, 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 light shine, uh, shining on it, uh, geometry, because it's visual, it is not dependent on how good that person was in arithmetic or how good that person was in algebra. It's a new page you open up in your uh, growth in mathematics because it's it's independent of what you've done before. And I, I've noticed that over the years, when students uh, get into a geometry course, everybody's on the same page. It's not, how good were you in algebra has nothing to do necessarily, I, I won't say nothing to do, but has little to do with how well you're going to do in uh in geometry because it's a new game yeah that's certainly true because i sucked at geometry and i was pretty good at algebra but you're absolutely right and what you said about teaching geometry or teaching anything whatsoever um yeah i can remember subjects which struck me as totally uninteresting but i had a great teacher that made it wonderful and there were courses which you wondered how the teacher was so bad that they could suck the life out of it and uh, um, it's, uh, it, it so much depends upon the teacher. And I don't know about you, but we're, you know, this, this lecture is taking place during the pandemic. And um, my wife is an instructor at a community college. And teaching online is so much more difficult because it's so much more difficult to bring that enthusiasm and personal contact um, into the uh, into teaching, and uh, I realize that's not a part of your book, but it uh, it's something that at least uh, reflects what it is that you said. It's the teacher that often makes the course. Yeah, and I do feel bad for a lot of students now because I fully agree with you. Um, there is, uh, you know, I've written books about how to teach mathematics and so on. One just came out recently. Uh, by World Scientific Publishing, uh, teaching secondary school mathematics techniques and enrichment units. And uh, I have to tell you, you cannot do online what you can do live. Just the physical enthusiasm the teacher shows is lost when you're doing it online. Even though you can show the the same graphics and so on, it's it's looking at the students, having them look at you, 
making sure they're not fading away somewhere. And I've, I've seen how I've, I've watched class and I've conducted some where students tune in and tune out class. In, in New York, there's a uh, regulation that you cannot force a student to keep his camera on. Uh, don't ask me why. That's at City University says if they want to turn the camera off, they can do it. And so very often time they uh, turn off the camera and when they turn it back on, they're in another location on my screen. And it's as though if it were alive, they'd be moving chairs all the time instead of being where they were. And if they're not on, I don't know who's speaking necessarily. And if they're paying attention or not paying attention, which is an important part of teaching, making sure that you're talking to each person, that you're not just talking to one person. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was in high school, I took a course in solid geometry, and I also learned something about spherical geometry. It was sort of taught as a unit in my regular geometry course. And these courses seem to have disappeared from the academic curriculum. And solid geometry was the most rigorous taxing course I ever took. And that, that includes college and high school. I mean, college and uh, graduate school. And I don't know why they're no longer taught when there are such great courses. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, as a matter of fact, New York State, as you know, uh, still has these regents examinations at the end of each uh, math course. And in 1966, they gave the last geometry, uh, uh, solid geometry regents exam. And I was already teaching high school in New York City at the time. And I coached the math team and I said to them, I, you guys are juniors, but uh, in, in, in your senior year, you would have gotten the geometry course, which is not going to be there anymore. So I'll tell you what, why don't we meet during the lunch period uh, for about two months and uh, we'll go through the whole geometry course. This, these were very, very bright kids. Yeah, I can imagine. That... We went through the entire course in two months during their lunch period and uh, they all took the, re the last Regents exam. Of course, they all got well over 90% uh, and uh, it was a delight. But I will tell you, you're absolutely right. It kills me when I think about the fact that that course is no longer given. Now, I've written a geometry textbook uh, back in the 70s where, uh, from McGraw-Hill. It's now still available in the Dover called uh, Geometry, this geometry textbook. Um, and uh, we do have a little bit of solid geometry in there, but not anywhere near what there should be because um, the we live in a three-dimensional space. And... Just to give you one example of why solid geometry or spherical geometry, if you will, which happens to be non-Euclidean geometry, um, uh, why that's important. If you're on an airplane and they have a map of where you're flying, and let's say you're flying from, let's say, uh, Frankfurt, Germany to Vancouver, and uh, um, you look at the map and you see, my God, He's flying over Greenland. Why does he go all the way up there when he has to? Because he's going on a great circle route. And a great circle route, when it's shown on a flat plane, looks weird because it's a big curve. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said for spherical geometry. Uh, in spherical geometry, the, close, the, the shortest distance between two points is not one of those latitude lines. It's a great circle line, which is a... a circle on the sphere whose center is at the center of the sphere. 
And so, like the equator, for example, is a great circle. And it's, it's, it's just, we live in this kind of a world. If you look in the corner of, your, of a room that you may be in, and you see where the ceiling and the two side wall, the walls uh, converge, and you have a trihedral angle, and there are various properties of those. Or on a, on a, in, a in spherical geometry, we draw a triangle in spherical geometry, Unlike in in plane geometry, you know that the sum of the angles of a triangle is equal to 180 degrees. In spherical geometry, it's got to be greater than 180 degrees and less than 540. And you say, what? How can that be? Well, it's another world. It's the real world. It's the real world. But unfortunately, that's not taught. And the, here's the unfortunate part. When the kids get, young students get to college and they're taking calculus or more advanced math, it is assumed they will know some of these things because they come up and then after quick, 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 try to figure out what, how, where, what, what does this mean? How is this? And they do a quick just to catch up on it. It's not clever. It's just not clever that they remove that from the curriculum. You know, when we think about geometries that has been developed since the Greeks originally investigated it, I personally was greatly impressed by analytic geometry because it enabled one to use algebra, which I consider to be a wonderful tool, to prove geometric propositions. But there are numerous other geometries. I, at some stage of the game, I was exposed to some of projective geometry, non-Euclidean geometry, which you just discussed, algebraic geometry, which I can't see what it has to do with geometry, and differential geometry, which Einstein used when he was discussing when he was constructing his theories of relativity. These are all college-level courses. Um, can you tell a little bit about how they arose and what questions they answer? Well, yeah, the one that well, you, one of the things you mentioned, which I think is very appropriate for the general audience, is projective geometry. Uh, and just to give you an example, um, if someone were to take a course in history of art, um, and they going back oh 1500 years or more there were very primitive pictures of the last supper jesus's last supper on friday the 13th by the way um where there were uh 13 people at the table and that's why 13 has become an unlucky number but in any case as you look at these they're very flat and they're almost like a kid drew them very primitively drawn until Leonardo da Vinci drew his Last Supper in the Maria della Grazia in Milan, Italy, which is a, a, a mural on a wall at the end of a rather long building. And the whole wall, you walk into that building and you see that wall at the end, you feel like you can walk right into that wall because he had the perspectivity so perfect. Every line, that the, the lines of the ceiling, the, the table, even the arms of the people, all, if you extend them, and, you know, I, in some of my books I've, I've done this, uh, when you extend them, they all go to Jesus' heart. And it's a an amazing thing with Leonardo, and Leonardo was well aware of it. And he, uh, in many of his sketches, show you see how he planned his drawings, knowing full well how to get depth perception. Or, for example, the uh, School of Athens, another picture which has excellent perspectivity, but that's dependent on understanding uh, uh, perspectivity in, in geometry, perspective geometry. So there you have a, a common usage for something like that. 
You know, uh, I I once had a conversation with you and you said that uh, Los Angeles is not one of your favorite places, but there's a wonderful uh, uh, collection of museums, gardens out here called Huntington Gardens, and in it there are art museums. And there's one picture called The Bird by an author, by an artist named Sibley, late 19th century American. And when I looked at it, I was just stunned by this picture because it's of a young girl holding a bird on her wrist. And if you look at it from the right angle, the bird absolutely jumps out at you. Um, And the perspective in that is just amazing. And it just goes to show how, uh, you know, how uh, important perspective is to art. And it probably didn't appear until, as you say, Leonardo started thinking about it. Right. No, that's true. Also, uh, an interesting um, experimenter, if I can call him that, is Albrecht Dürer, the probably the most famous German artist of all time, who had drawn a number of sketches where he shows how he attempts to get uh, proper depth perception, where he shows people drawing, like someone drawing in front of a, um, a grid, a, you know, rectangular grid, with the subject behind him and just filling in each of the squares to get the proper perspectivity that way. So, I mean, everybody tried different things. And, 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 and uh, uh, Dura did go to Italy to learn from the Italian artists as well in the uh, 1500s. So, that I mean, this was, that people, uh, it, it was not an easy trip. But, uh, and by the way, I don't dislike uh, Los Angeles. I have to like it because my son lives there. Oh. <laughs> But uh, no, I I just always say that when you're in Los Angeles, where you go looks like where you just were. But uh, part of its charm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you expect from a New Yorker? Uh, well, I was born in New York, but I I like New York, but I love Los Angeles. But let's get a little bit back to your book. Yeah, let me let me give you another example. Okay. Of something that's uh, kind of interesting. Sure. Um, as I said earlier. Anytime you have three points that don't lie on a straight line, in other words, non-collinear points, um, you can always draw a circle through it, and you can draw a triangle. Okay. Well, uh, Leonard Euler, the Swiss mathematician, who probably, we could say, was the most prolific mathematician of all time. He's written more than anybody else in the history of mathematics. what I understand is still discovering things that he wrote that that, knew, that they haven't seen before. So the guy is quite a, uh, and the interesting thing about it is he, uh, he, he worked most of the early part of his life with only one eye. And as he got older, he lost sight in his, in his other eye. And when he was unable to see, he wrote more than he did when he had vision. And you say, well, how could he do that? He dictated. Now, it's just imagine how dictating a long proof, memorizing in your mind or keeping in mind everything you've set up to that point so that it all works out. It's just an amazing. I mean, you know, the the level of brilliance is is unbelievable and you can't really describe it. In any case, he came up with a very interesting theorem. He said, uh, you take a triangle and you draw the uh, medians, that's the line going from a vertex to the midpoint of the opposite side, and you draw the uh, altitudes, 
from each of the three vertices, and you have six points where those three uh, six lines meet the various sides. And he showed that you can draw a circle through those six points. Now, to draw a circle through three points that are not collinear, that's trivial. But to when to even get four points is already quite amazing. Four points that all lie in the same circle. Well, here he got six points that lie in the same circle. And this was a he just came. This was in 1765. Now, in, in 1820, Briancon and Poncelet, uh, who happened to have been uh, some of Napoleon's people and who might have really been responsible for for Napoleon's uh, theorem, pre- yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're not going to. That's that's a speculation. Um, these two guys came up with another three points that lie on that same circle. So that you don't only have six points, you have nine points. And it's a very famous theorem called the nine-point circles theorem. And those last three points are from the the midpoints of the segments from the point of intersection of the altitudes, which is called the orthocenter. Those three midpoints from the Mid, from the orthocenter to the vertex of each of those three uh, altitudes um, are the other three points that lie on that nine, creating the nine-point circle. So there you go. It's just a way how these things evolve over time. I mean, eight, from 1765, 1820, it's a good piece of time before it came apparent. You know um, that last might be a little hard for the audience, but uh, but here's one that's relatively easy for the audience. You start off the book with a really lovely and unsuspected theorem about the midpoints of quadrilaterals. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, and that's if you could describe that, because if anybody's got a pencil and paper with them at the moment, they can see it. This is probably one of the a, a very funny story. This goes back, oh, about, oh, maybe 20, 30, 20 years or so, when uh, a publisher came out with this uh, dynamic software called Geometer Sketchpad. Remember it well. Yeah, it still exists. I think McGraw-Hill uh, uh, owns it now. It's a lovely program that you can use to draw things on a computer perfectly and make all these things work. And uh, they, I, uh, this guy, Steve Rasmussen, who was then the president of the company, uh, saw me at a, at a conference, I believe that was in uh, St. Louis, and he says, Al, you've got to come and take a look at our, our, our booth here. He had a booth in this uh, math conference with several thousand people, and uh, I want to show you something. And on his, he takes me over to his booth, and on the screen he says, Take a look at this new program. Watch what you can draw a line. You can draw an angle. Da, da, da. I said, really? That's neat. Uh, why don't you try it? So I take the cursor and I draw a line. And then I I said, why? Let me see if I can draw a quadrilateral. So I draw some ugly quadrilateral, not a rectangle, not a trapezoid, just ugly, all just. But convex. Right. And I said, by the way, Steve, how do you get the midpoints? Oh, that's very easy. Just. Highlight the line, and you select midpoint, bingo, 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 and you get the midpoints. I said, oh, that's neat. And then I get the exact midpoint. Okay, now I said, well, look, watch this. Let me connect the four midpoints of those sides. And he looks at it and says, okay, so what? He says, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a parallelogram. 
I said, yes. I said, no matter what kind of quadrilateral you begin with, if you join the midpoints of the sides, you will always get a parallelogram in the middle. And at, when I did that, all of a sudden, on the other end of this gigantic uh, ex exhibition hall, I hear screams. Wow, and applause. I said, Steve, <laughs> down there. He says, oh, Al, I forgot to tell you, what you did on the screen was on a giant screen down the other end. <laughs> um, it should, you know. He gave me the program because he said that one of my books was uh, his motivator to, to have the program created. Wonderful. So I now own a, a, a copy of the program, which is very good, I have to say. It's, I would strongly suggest it. Yeah, what uh, you can do is you can vary the quadrilateral and you can watch it always being that, a parallelogram. That's, exactly right. that's, a, that's exactly. a nice part of it. But one thing that should be mentioned is that that only applies to convex quadrilaterals. Um, convex figures are ones such that if you take any, uh, any two points in the figure and draw the straight line between them, um, it remains within the figure. Things like circles and squares and triangles are convex but an hourglass figure like a snowman isn't because if you connect something, the eye of a snowman to the bottom, uh, to the bottom base, it'll go outside the snowman. So it's not convex. Yeah. But you interesting things happen. If you, uh, if you crush the original quadrilateral, uh, you still get something. I won't say what I'll let everybody try it on their own. Uh, it, it's, it's noteworthy. Um, we also, in the book, uh, talk about geometric mistakes, and there's a lot of fun with those. Uh, there's, that's the one place where we do quote-unquote proofs, and all the proofs have a fault in them. And the, the nice thing is the person doing it is oftentimes not aware where the mistake is that gives you this crazy result. For example, you can prove, with quotes around the word prove, that any triangle you draw with three unequal sides actually has two equal sides. And is that <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have a hard time accepting that. So I said, how do you, what do you mean? I said, well, you watch. And, I, I, and I've done this with classes many times. They, I have someone come to the board, draw a triangle. Are you sure these three sides are not? Yes. I'm, this is a ski lean triangle. No two sides the same length. Well, I'm going to prove to you that two of those sides have the same length. And I do this little proof, very, very simple, nothing more than the first semester of high school geometry. Very easy. Wow, that's amazing. It's true, but I, but they're not equal. I said, but you see the proof. <laughs> and this is a proof, I hate to say it this way, that if Euclid were around now, he would not know how to respond to it because it has to do with the concept of betweenness a point being between two other points or not being between two other points. And, uh, and, and when it, of course I show then how, where the fault lies, it's, I, I, I hate to say it this way, it's the way you drew it, but that, that it's an interesting thing. Or you can show how I, I mentioned before that a triangle has a, an angle sum of 180 degrees. Well, I can prove to you that an angle has more than 180 degrees. Two right triangles could be in, two right angles can be in one triangle. What? How can that be? Well, there are ways to do it. And we show these proofs and you say, well, where's the mistake? It looks everything's logical. Well, again, that's the beauty of it. 
Well, I can, I can tell you where you can have two right, right angles and a triangle in a spherical triangle. I yeah, learned that in spherical before, geometry in high school. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, you know, one of the things is we all know how useful the, some of the major results of geometry are. The Pythagorean, you know, if you teach calculus, and I teach calculus a lot, what you really need from geometry are you need the Pythagorean theorem and you need similar triangles. Those are just absolutely critical results. But one of the things that I sort of wondered about are there's a lot of geometry, as you discussed, which has been developed, say, since the, since the year 1500. But do any of these theorems have anything near the practical value that Euclidean geometry has? Well, spherical geometry certainly does. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, geometry, plain, uh, plain geometry results that, say, after 1500. I'll give you another one. This is one of my favorite little gags. Why are sewer covers always round? You know, the manhole covers in the street. Why are they round? And most people say, well, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I say, why aren't they square? Uh, that, that, they could be square. Uh, maybe they're bigger. I said, no, that's not the And there's a, a reason for that, and it's a very simple one. If you have a square, now, if you've ever seen the people uh, opening up the sewer covers, for those people who may remember who Ed Norton was. Uh, he oh, yeah. <laughs> the honeymooners. That's right. He worked in the sewer. He had to open the sewer cover. They never pick up the cover. They grab it with a crowbar, and they drag it off, and they slide it off because they're very, very heavy metal. And uh, if you have a square one, and you slide it back a little bit carelessly, it can fall in because the... If it goes in along the diagonal of the hole and the side goes in first, it'll fall right in. Yeah, right. But whereas a circle will never fall Never in. happen. Yes, that's very intriguing. So <laughs> there's a practical reason for geometry, knowing a little geometry. Yeah, it also makes for better wheels. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> although, although that brings up another point, the Rouleau Triangle. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yes, it, I am. But why don't you tell our audience? The Rouleau Triangle, named after a German uh, engineer who, in the 1800s, wanted to come up with a button, you know, a button on your jacket or shirt or whatever. Um, all, we ha all our buttons are basically round. Why are they round? Because you can just, you don't have to look at it. You push it through the hole and it'll go through. If you have a, some, sometimes there are women who have a very fancy blouse with a button that's a, like a little stick and that one has to be shoved through the short end into the hole and then it'll hold very nice um but he wanted to create another but a button that would also go into a hole as a, a circle a circle does but is not necessarily a circle and he came up with this shape called the Rouleau triangle and the way you create this is you start off with an equilateral triangle, which is a triangle of all three sides, same length. And on each side, you construct a circular arc where the center of the circle is on the opposite vertex of that side. And you swing the arc just along that side. And so you do that three times. And the result is, it looks like a sort of a, 
a, a triangle with with sort of circular, I guess, arc sides. Um, you've seen them. You know, people, you see them. A, a silver a, a, a dishes are made in that shape, and certainly buttons. And also, you'll find them on uh, hydrant uh, uh, valves. And the reason is that if if you saw a fire hydrant, picture a fire hydrant. Typically, most of them have pentagonal, um, um, uh, uh, what do you call uh, faucets or whatever you call um, the, the shut-off valve yeah. or the shut-on valve. And the reason it's a pentagonal is because you can't put a wrench on it. it. There are no two parallel sides. And you have to have a wrench that's a shape of a uh, the exact same shape and size of that pentagon. Well, if you have a reload try, if you have a circle there, you certainly can't use a wrench because the cir- the wrench would just slide along the circle. But the, and the reload triangle has the same property of a circle. If you put a wrench on a reload triangle, it'll just slide around. You'll never be able to grab it. So that the only way they would have been able to open that uh, fire hydrant is with a wrench that's exactly the same shape as that uh, reload triangle. And so there you have an example <coughs> of that reload triangle, which is a button. I mean, you see them as buttons. You see them as dishes are made of that shape for any number of reasons. You know, it's funny. You were discussing pentagons, and I remember the following um, uh, the following comment that my geometry... T- I can't even remember who my geometry teacher was, except for the fact that, sadly, she passed away during the middle of the uh, school year. But she told us one interesting, uh, one interesting story about pentagons that I've never forgotten. She told us that she had a grandmother who wanted to make a quilt using regular pentagons. So she cut out a lot of regular, quinta- regular pentagons, sewed them together... And the quilt was incredibly lumpy because pentagons don't fit together to make uh, a flat surface the way, say, equilateral triangles or squares will. Right, right. And uh, I always thought that was, you know, that was sort of a neat result from geometry that piqued my curiosity. And you started talking earlier about the golden rectangle. And I know the golden rectangle has history dating to the Greeks, but... Um, and I know with the, you know, with the relationship that determines the sides of the golden rectangle is, but I wonder why the Greeks, and you're a, you're a uh, historian, so I'm hoping that you know this, why the Greeks were so attracted to this. I mean, I know they thought it was a great looking rectangle. To me, okay, it's not too thin and it's not too, you know, it's not too square, but I don't know what it was that appealed to them about this particular rectangle. And obviously it appealed to, uh, you know, it appealed to Leonardo as well, because as you said, that's the moment, you know, the shape of the, uh, face, the, the rectangle that contains the Mona Lisa's face. So well, I, let me uh, start by saying, I, I said, I mentioned earlier that the um, golden ratio, the golden rectangle was the most beautiful rectangle. Well, how? What gives us the right to say that? Great question. Psychologists have given, uh, in the eight, basically late 1800s, a number of a, a large number of sample uh, tests to people where they were given maybe 20 different shaped rectangles, not the square, but everything but a square. 
and ask to rate them as to how attractive they find them. And the golden rectangle won hands down. Amazing. So, so that that's one thing. If you ask somebody on, if you look at a very uh, narrow rectangle, long and not very high. Okay, the ratio L to W. High yeah. ratio of L to W. If you look at that kind of a rectangle, typically you cannot look at it at a glance. Your eyes go sideways or up and down, whichever way it goes. But you, it's not a comfortable look. It's always you're looking, you're turning your head to, to scan the whole thing uh, horizontally. So that's one, one thing about the beauty of it. Now, it happens to connect. Well, I've written a book about the golden ratio, so I'm, it's <laughs> something I feel pretty comfortable about. Um, first of all, there are many ways to construct it. And it's a ratio, it's a, um, a, a relationship of length to width. The, the length, uh, the, the width is to the length as the uh, length is to the width plus the length. And uh, uh, it's, it comes out that when you do some algebra, I don't know how to explain this now on, on the, uh, without showing it, you do the algebra, you find that the value of this ratio length to width is about uh, length to width is about 1.618 and it goes on and on and on forever. And that's called the golden ratio or which forms a golden rectangle. Now that's supposedly beautiful. And where does it appear? Well, it appears so many places. For example, if you were to box in, take a, make, take a picture of the uh, Parthenon in Athens, Greece, and you box it in, sides, bottom, across the, the top of it, you'll find it's a golden rectangle. Now, were they aware of it? We don't know. We assume, perhaps, I'm assuming they were, but we don't have very firm evidence that they followed it. They clearly want to construct a beautiful uh, structure. Uh, the golden rectangle comes up in many, many artworks. Some some artists were very much aware of it. Le Corbusier was aware of it. Uh, the architect, um, I believe, either exactly or very close, the UN building is a golden rectangle. Um, and so you can look through anything that's uh, very attractive. A lot of the television screens that we have today, if you measure the width and divide it by the length, or either way, you get 1.618. Or the, the unusual thing about this ratio is it's the only ratio where the number and its reciprocal differ by one. In other words, if you take the length to the width, it's 1.618. If you take the width to the length, it's 0 0.618, and on and on and on. So it's very unusual in that regard. It then relates to the Fibonacci numbers. The Fibonacci numbers, which we first became acquainted with in 1202 in a book by Leonardo of Pisa, whose real name tended to, by today's name, his real today's name is Fibonacci, uh, in his book called Liberabaci, the first, uh, which is the first time in the Western European world that these n numbers one, two, three, four, five, up to uh, nine 
were actually used because before that they used Roman numerals or Egyptian hieroglyphics or whatever. But uh, he brought those in from uh, the Arabian world. and uh, Good choice. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, they got it from India, and that's why we call them Hindu-Arabic numerals. <clears throat> and uh, if you uh, take in, in the 12th chapter of his book, he has a, a problem about the regeneration of rabbits, and uh, you get... You, he wants to know how many rabbits will be at the end of a year, and you look at how they regenerate themselves. I won't go into the whole thing now because we don't have the time. But you look at the number of rabbits each month, the number of pairs of rabbits each month. It's one, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, and so on. You start with one and one. You add the two to get the next one. One and two to get three. Two and three to get five. Five and three to get eight, and so on. Always the last two numbers added together give you the next number those are the fibonacci numbers which appear everywhere in from finance to art to biology i mean it's just incredible if you count the spirals on a uh, on a uh, pineapple there are three different shape uh, different direction spirals they'll always be fibonacci numbers if you look at a pine cone and you look at the spirals on a pine cone always fibonacci numbers and then if now, where does that, what does that have to do with the uh, golden rectangle? Well, as you move out further and further in the Fibonacci numbers, uh, where you go from 89 to 144 and so on, and you divide two consecutive Fibonacci numbers, the further out you go, it gets to the golden ratio, which is amazing. Yeah, All of a sudden, yeah, it certainly one has yeah. nothing to do with the other. And you, if you divide, say, 144, by 89, you're going to get something very close to 1.6. Absolutely amazing. You know, Al, it's been a fascinating talking geometry with you, um, but unfortunately, we're sort of out of time. So what I'd always like to do is I'd like to ask you um, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how they can do that. Well, I'm always on the Internet, and I will tell you I will respond I'd say within an hour or two, but I'll say for sure within 24 hours. And my email address is asp1818 at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to correspond with anyone who's interested. And Al, I'll be happy to talk to you about your next book. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Have a nice day. Take care. I hope you have joy with geometry. Yep. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye.